Now, let's talk about joy. <laughs> the way of joy. Philippians chapter 1, 21 through 30. Stand with me for the reading of the word. So the word of our Lord. For to me is to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. That your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you, uh, to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here in me. Father, open up our hearts and minds to your word, Lord God. In a time, Lord God, of, Lord, terrible happenings in our country, in our world, sometimes in our lives, you promise us, Lord God, a joy that transcends happenings. That we can have joy, Lord God, in the worst of times and in the best of times. I pray, Lord God, that you would teach us your way to this joy through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So, what, what you see here in the book of Philippians is a wonderful word of God that could teach us how to get off the roller coaster ride of emotion. Right? Most human beings, I would say 98% of human beings, they, they live on this roller coaster ride of emotion. Something good happens, they're up. Something bad happens, they're down. Something good happens, they're happy. Something bad happens, they're sad. Most people live their lives like thermometers, controlled and manipulated by the environment around them, by circumstances, by people. Think about this. When somebody can make you happy or sad, you have just placed your heart right in their hands and they have control over you. Think about it. You've given them control over your life. Philippians is about leaving the life of being a thermometer and entering to life of being a thermostat. Philippians was written by a man who was in prison, right, with uh, the shadow of a Roman soldier hanging over him 24-7, yet he mentions joy and rejoicing 24 times, and he shows us that that entire joy that he's experienced is flowing from one thing, and that is from his relationship with Jesus, who happens to be the same yesterday and today and forever, who doesn't change like the world and the people around us. He offers to us this, this spiritual fruit of joy 
this incredible power that transcends our environment, our situation, and outer influences. See, in life, and you're going to see this as we go through Philippians more and more, there are three things that you have the power to control. There's a whole lot of things that are out of your control. But three things that you can control. One is your attitude. We're going to look at that next week in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 is all about attitude. Second thing you can control is your uplook. And you may be thinking, oh no, it's outlook. No, it's, it's, it's uplook. And that is fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. So joy is mentioned 24 times in the book of Philippians. How many times is Jesus mentioned? 5-0. Jesus is mentioned 50 times. And again, it's in our relationship and our focus on Jesus that this joy can manifest in our lives. Get your eyes off of Jesus and you'll see you will fall, you will fall right into the joyless life. The third thing that we can control is our responses. Most of us go through life where, again, reactors, we're thermometers. Philippians teaches us that we can be responders. So, Philippians is about, again, becoming thermostats. Philippians is about leaving a life of being a thermometer that's essentially at the mercy of circumstances and problems and other people. So today, as we wrap up chapter 1, we're going to look at three key things about, again, the way to joy. First, the joy of having the right attitude about life and death. I want to give you some, uh, some good news. You're all living right now, right? And here's the bad news. You're all heading for a funeral. You know that, right? You're all heading for a funeral. Some of you right now, you may hear, you can hear the funeral music playing in the background. <laughs> so look at what it says in Philippians chapter 1, 21 through 24. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. To live for Paul was about fruitful, fruitfulness and producing fruit. Yet he says, what shall I choose? I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. I want you to answer this question. I see a lot of you taking notes. You want to write this down. Write down the answer to this question and be honest. For me to live is what? Be honest. Write down, you know, write down your answer. For me to live is what? What are you living for? What, what are you living for? Some people may say for me to live is pleasure. For me to live is food. For me to live is money. For me to live is stuff. For me to live is entertainment. For me to live is fame. For me to live is comfort. Everyone is living for something. Everyone. There's something you're living for today. And then the second part of the question, to die. To die is, be honest. To die is fear. To die is terror. To die is loss. 
Some people may say to die is freedom. They're in pain. To die is freedom from pain. Some people, to die is the end. I, I pulled this quote off of this woman from the internet. She said, death, it's the end of everything I've ever known or ever will know. And words can't even begin to express the sadness of that. Pretty morbid, right? Paul says to die is gain. And he says, if I live in the flesh, it will mean fruitful labor. And if I depart, it means that I will be with Christ. So to live is Christ, to die is gain. Let's, let's look at this, and I want you to look at what this means. To live is Christ. What does it mean to live is Christ? And there's probably a lot of different ideas that everybody has right now. I'm going to give you what I, I get from Scripture about what it is to live as Christ and from two passages from Corinthians and Colossians. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. To me, to live as Christ is to live to glorify God. And then in Colossians 3.23 and 24, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. So what does it mean to live for Christ? I believe it means to glorify him and to glorify him with a level of passion, to glorify him with a level of intensity, and to glorify him in whatever you do, whether you're praying or playing, right? To, to glorify him, you know, when you're worshiping him in church, when you're studying his word, when you're praying, when you're serving him, but to glorify him when you're driving in your car, to glorify him when you're working in your career, to glorify him when you're at school and you're learning and you're studying, to glorify him when you're cooking a meal, to glorify him when you're changing a diaper, to glorify him no matter what you're doing, right? What does it say there? What, what, whatever. To glorify him with whatever you're doing. Do all for the glory of God and do it heartily. Do it with passion. Do it with intensity. I said this to you a couple of weeks. I play to an audience of one. What does it mean to play to an audience of one? It means to live to glorify Jesus. An audience of one. See, you may all, right now, most of you, you have your eyes fixed on me. I have my eyes fixed on Jesus. I said this last week, you know, it's not about me, it's really about God, it's about you. But it's really ultimately about glorifying God. That is the, the purpose, the mission, the goal to glorify God, to please Jesus, and, and not to please you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, I don't care what you think of me. He says, I don't even care what I think of myself. The only thing that matters is what God thinks of me. That's the idea of playing to an audience of one. Back in 2016, Carson Wentz, playing for the Philadelphia Eagle, Eagles, 
The NFL allowed the players on the 13th week of the season to decorate their cleats any way they wanted. And Carson Wentz, with a number of other NFL players, they designed their sneakers to look like this. And notice it was, again, with the, um, the emblem there, slogan, an audience of one. And the players, Tessa, you can see this. You can go online and you can look at this. The players said, you know, we come onto the field and there is an audience of 80,000 people watching us, right? The lights go on and you're in a stadium with 80,000 screaming, yelling fans. And then there's another million people watching you on television. And they said it's not about making ourselves famous. It's about making Jesus known. When the lights go on and everyone's eyes are fixed on us, our eyes are fixed on Jesus. And they said it's not just a slogan. Christians are notorious for slogans. They said it's not just a slogan, it's a lifestyle. Win, lose, or draw. They said we live for the glory of Jesus. They were not giving lip service to Jesus. A lot of lip service in the churches. It was instead that they were living a lifestyle. Playing, living to an audience of one. Why? Why to live as Christ? Why live your life to an audience of one? Why? I'll give you, I'm going to give you three really good reasons. One, he made you. He created you. For he created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. He knits you together and puts you together in your mama's belly. He is your creator. He made you. He gave you the very potential you have. He made you into the very unique person. Look around. Do you see anybody who's just like you? I don't see anybody here who's just like me. But thank God for that, right? But he made you completely unique. But he is your creator. Second, he is your sustainer. It tells us in Colossians 1.17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the sustainer of our lives. You know, sometimes you may be having a hard time holding it together. How many of you sometimes find it's hard to hold it together? I just want to tell you, he's holding you together. He always holds you together. You may be having a hard time holding yourself together, but Jesus is holding you together. He is holding everything about you together. Every cell, right? He's holding together. The functions, your heartbeat, is right now something that he is sustaining. The breathing, the function of your adrenals, the function of your liver, the function of your kidneys. Do you know what the Bible says? There's coming a day, and you see some of this time, this happening in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But there's coming a day where an entire generation of people will just drop dead. I'm not talking about the rapture. I'm talking about the glorious appearing. When the, Lord, when the Lord glorious appears at the end of the tribulation, right before the millennial kingdom, there's going to be an entire generation of people who are not believers, and what it says is they're just going to drop. Just, just drop to the ground dead. Their bodies will be there. The vultures are going to come and eat them. It's going to be a big feast that it talks about. Revelation chapter 19. And their souls will go to hell. But that is a picture of the Lord having the power 
and the very power of sustaining us every minute, every moment. Thank you, Lord, that I woke up this morning and that you're sustaining my very breath, my very heartbeat today. So we, we worship him and glorify him and to live is Christ and we live to the audience of one because he is our creator, because he is our sustainer and because he is our savior. In, in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for, towards us and what, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He created us, he sustained us, and he saved us. You know, Jesus died for us. Jesus died for me. No one has ever done that for me. Have you ever had somebody do that for you? And not only did he die for me in my place on the cross, but he took all my sins upon himself and all their punishment upon himself. He died for me. Those to me are, are three great reasons to live for Christ. My creator, my sustainer, my savior. I, I don't know of, of, of anybody who, who has done that for anyone. And to me, that is the, the very reason why we live to an audience of one. That is the very reason why to live is Christ. And then look at the second part. To die is gain. Again, to unbelievers, death is not gain. Death is loss. Here's some people, they, they say, I lost my mother. I, I lost my husband. Where did you lose them to? Where are they? They have to be somewhere, right? Where did you, where did you lose them? Or people will say, oh, they passed. Where did they pass away to? Did they pass by? Did they pass gas? It came from my brother-in-law. He said that yesterday. But then think about the silliness of that. What do, what do we say as believers, right? When, when Pedro Romero, right, when he died, yeah, right, where'd he go? Yeah, right? When my father died, where did he go? He went home, right? When Don Kreitz died, where did he go? He went home, right? They, they went home. When, 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 Jeannie, when Jeannie died, where did she go? She went home, right? They didn't pass. They didn't get lost. God wasn't looking around and saying, where's Pedro? I, I don't know where he went. He knew exactly where he was because he was with him. So what a morbid way to look. And when I hear Christians say that, I, I'll correct them. Because that's, that's, not, that's not what we believe. Death is gain. Why is death gain for the Christian? Well, I'll show you, I just want to show you, to me, two great things here. The first, Revelation chapter 21, 3 through 4. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Death for the Christian is, is trans, being transported to the heavenly environment where we will dwell in perfect fellowship with God. And then, notice verse 4, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more crying. There shall be no more death, no more dying, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain. Nellie, is that good? No more pain. Nellie was just telling me today she's in pain. 
and the former things have passed away. Now, to me now, I don't know about you, that's all gain, right? There's, there's no loss there. And then, and then I'll show you another, another passage. First John chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, that's talking about our glorification. That's not saying we're going to be God, but that is saying that we will be glorified, and we will, we will have a, a perfect, right? Well, perfect bodies, like Jesus had. We're going to have a perfect moral nature, and the removal of all sin and all of its effects. Now, think of this, right? A body that is glorified is like Jesus I'm reading uh, Luke chapter 24 this morning when Jesus appeared at the resurrection, the day of the resurrection on that Sunday to the apostles and they're freaking out. And he says, look, I'm not, I'm not a spirit. He goes, touch me. I won't be able to touch him. When you see Jesus, I just want to grab onto, I just grab onto his feet. I just want to go down and grab me. People say, what am I going to do when I see the Lord? I'm going to say, no, I'm just going to fall at his feet and just grab onto his feet. Just touch him. We're not crying, so I'm not going to be crying on his feet. But right now, I'd like to cry on his feet. And then, and then he said, well, you think I'm a spirit? He goes, give me something to eat. What do they give him to eat? Royal fish. But John also says they give him something else. They give him honeycombs. Was that the honeycombs breakfast cereal that they gave him? No, honeycombs. They gave him a honeycomb. He ate the honeycomb and he ate the fish. He was able to move through space and time. It's going to be pretty incredible. Glorified body. We're also, I believe, going to have a glorified mind. Our mind will be glorified where there's not any of this one. You know, it's so hard to wander. Right now, some of you may be having a hard time, you know, being able to focus on the very message because your mind is always distracted. Your mind is always going in other places. Well, you're not going to have that. You're going to have perfect focus on the Lord. And then I believe we're going to have a spirit that's glorified too where we'll have, it's going to be a perfect relationship with him. No more confessing, you know, no more need of repentance. Just perfect harmony. That's to live as Christ and to die as gain. We are of tremendous gain. I think that's what Paul, Paul means there, right? To live as Christ and to die as gain. All right, number two. The joy of faith. Verse 25, 26. And being confident... Of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. That your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. I want to do something with you. I want to help to simplify the Christian life. I want to say this to you. The Christian life, it is um, simple. But it's not simplistic. And, and the Christian life is, um, it's complex, but not complicated. I don't know if you want to, if you've been studying the word for a while, faith, I think you wrapped your mind around that. Some of you have been studying the word, you, you realize that. But when it, comes, when it comes to faith, okay, and notice the joy of faith, essentially it's what we believe. It's, so to speak, it's our doctrine. And, and I think in a lot of Christians' lives, it's very confusing. In a lot of churches, it's very confusing. You have people could be sitting here right now and have, have 50 different, different uh, you know, doctrines, 50 different beliefs. So I'm going to take you, and I've done this with you before. I want to take you to Galatians chapter 
And uh, here in the New King James Version, it says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, there are grammatical reasons why the translators translate, I live by faith in the Son of God. Translating the Greek Aramaic into English. I believe a more accurate rendering which brings out the deeper meaning that God intended to convey to us. I live in the faith of the Son of God. You go and grab an interlinear and you look at it. Interlinear is, the, you know, again, the translation from the Greek to the uh, English. I believe that is the proper rendition. I live in the faith of the Son of God. In, in other words, what do I believe? I believe in what Jesus believed. I believe in what Jesus believes. You want to, want to simplify the Christian life. Maybe, you know, you're, try, you're trying to figure it out. A lot of confusion, right? You got, you got men in churches and their theologies, and you got preachers and, and all their opinions, and you've got Calvinists and Arminians. And, but let me say this to you. I've seen people get so confused by listening to what people have to say on the internet, on YouTube, I mean, they can get so confused, they can get confused out of Jesus. And there's people in the church right now, some people that are, I, I, I can see them and they're in that place. They're literally confused out of their relationship with the Lord. So, you got again, the Calvinists and the Minions and the Pentecostals and you got the Catholics and the Baptists and the Progressives and the Emergence Church and the New Apostolic Doctrine and Health and Wealth Gospel. What do you believe? Well, what Paul is saying here, I live in the faith of the Son of God. I live in the faith of Jesus. You got your Bibles? You got a red letter edition? Right? That's where it starts. There's the very, the very words of Jesus, but then you can go out a little bit further because the Gospels are the word of Jesus. Black letter, red letter. The entire Bible, right, from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, this is the word of God. Jesus was God. So here, here is, right, our faith. Right there is our doctrine. And just look at what Jesus believed about the Bible, about the Trinity. Maria says to me that she's talking to some people and they don't believe in the Trinity. Well, Jesus certainly did. What he believed about heaven, what he believed about hell. There are churches all around us, so-called churches, they don't believe in hell. They believe there's no hell and everyone is going to heaven. Well, Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. What Jesus believed about salvation. There are churches that say there are many ways to God. There are many paths. There are many roads to God. You know what Jesus said? He said, there's one way. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one come to the Father except through me. John chapter 14, 6. There are people that don't believe in demons. Jesus did. People don't believe in a devil. 
Jesus certainly did. You want to know what Jesus believed about marriage? He believed that it was meant to be between a man and a woman. Matthew chapter 19. And you want to know what Jesus believed about our sexuality? He believed that there are only two genders, male and female. So there's just the elimination of a whole lot of confusion. I live in the faith of the Son of God. Let me tell you, that's a joyful thing. It's a joyful thing. I went to Bible college, and then I went to seminary, and we studied comparative religions. We're studying, you know, what Hindus believe and what the Buddhists believe and what, you know, Jewish people believe. We're looking at all the different comparative, and then we study the cults what the Jehovah Witnesses believe and the Mormons and Christian science and the New Age. And then we get into all the doctrines in the church, right? The Calvinists and the Arminians. It can make your head spin. You go up into my library and you'll see, you'll see thousands of books on all those theologies. It's joyful to come to the place where you just come and it's what Jesus believed. I just need to Live my life based upon what Jesus believes. He is the author and finisher of our faith. And believing in the faith of Jesus, believing in his words, what he said, what he believed. Let me show you an interesting passage from from John chapter uh, 6. There were a bunch of people following Jesus, a multitude following Jesus. They were following, they wanted to see miracles, they wanted him to give them more bread to eat. And it says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Isn't that interesting that you can be a disciple and not be truly saved? From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And then Jesus said unto the twelve, will you also go away? And then Simon Peter answered him, look at what his words, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that, that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Look at that. Where are we going to go? Where are you going to go? Trying to figure this out? Young people? Old people? Trying to figure out life? Trying to figure out the purpose of life, the meaning of life, right? You're trying, you're trying to figure out why, why evil happens? Want to try to figure out, you know, what comes next? If there's anything that comes next? Want to figure out who's up there? Want to figure out who you are, what you are, what your purpose here on this earth is? Where, where are you going to go? Where, where are you going to go? Go to the elites? They claim to have all the answers. Most of the time I find with them, they're so open-minded that their brains have fallen out and they can't find them. Going to go to the scientists? They can't agree on anything. The psychologist? Sociologist? You know what you, you have in our culture right now? It's a culture in despair. I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and that was a culture that was deeply searching for God. And they were searching for God in some really strange places, and a lot of them were killing themselves in that, right, with drugs and a whole lot of other things. But we live in a culture of despair. People are desperate. 
And, and just, you see them, you know, they're acting out. So when you see the riots and you see the fires and you see the protests and people joining, you know, gangs and people getting involved in cults and, and then, you know, if they're not finding the answers, then it's right, the bottle. And then it's pills and the use of drugs. But it's a, a people who are you know, very hopeless and they're searching, right? They're, they're, they're searching for the missing pieces, right? They, they want to find the missing... What are, what are the missing pieces to the puzzle? Sometimes I hear Christians say, Jesus is the missing piece to the puzzle. I want to tell you, he's not. He's not the missing piece to the puzzle. I know this may disappoint some of you. Jesus is the puzzle. <laughs> Not the missing piece to the puzzle. He, he is the puzzle. And when you come to know him, and you come to know his word, and you begin to abide in his word, and his word begins to abide in you, it begins to make sense. All those questions begin to be answered. And this thing called life and this thing called death suddenly begins to make sense. I don't know about you, that's joyful to me. <laughs> it really is. It's, it's, I'm, I'm thankful for the blood of Christ every day. I never let a day go past. You go in my journals and you see my prayer of thanksgiving and it begins every day. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood, for your sacrificial death for me, for taking my place on the cross, giving me forgiveness and setting me free. I thank him every day for, for his blood. And I thank him every day for his revelations because he has answered the questions. And that brings joy. All right, number three, final one. The joy of our citizenship. So if you look at, at verse 27... Through 30, it says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You know that word conduct? Anybody here, a little Greek, know what that word conduct is? It's politics. It's politikia. <laughs> it's um, only let your politics be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And um, some of the Bible, let me just, I'll flip ahead here for a second. Philippians chapter 127, New Living uh, Translation, it says, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven. Do you realize you're a citizen of heaven? Conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. So that is um, essentially what, you know, what Paul is saying. Let your conduct, like again, live as, as citizens of the gospel, live as citizens of the kingdom, citizens of the king, citizens of heaven, so that whether I come to see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We're living like brothers and sister citizens, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation. And that from God, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer, right? Sometimes we suffer as citizens of heaven in this faraway place. Have you noticed that? 
having the same conflicts which you saw in me and now here in me. But we don't live in terror, right? We don't live, you know, in fear. We live as citizens of heaven. In Philippians chapter 3, 20 and 21, you have again Paul mentioning this. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Through the years, people come to me and they say, what political party do you belong to? And I believe because of my Christian values, I have sided far more with Republicans than Democrats, but there have been some Democrats through the years that I felt were, were good, righteous Christian people, and I have you know, voted for a handful of them. I think the Republican Party ain't, no, uh, ain't nothing wonderful either with everything you see going on. But I, I am not a registered Republican. I'm not a registered uh, Independent, nor am I a registered Democrat. I will usually tell people that I belong to the monarchy. I'm a monarchist. The monarchy of the king of kings. I am a monarchist who I believe he's coming soon to translate us into his kingdom of heaven and to reign as the king of kings and the lord of lords on earth, King Jesus, my Lord, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I have great joy in being a citizen of heaven. Great joy in that. I will vote. I will take a stand. I will fight for what I believe he stands for. But I know that this is not my home. I am not a citizen of earth. Right? I'm a citizen of heaven. So let me give you the wrap up here. Just take a few moments. I'm going to go from point three to point two to point one in closing. First, as citizens of heaven, do you have your passport? How do you get your passport? You, you repent from your sins. Right? You, you come to Jesus just as you are. Maybe today you're not in Jesus. You haven't come and received his salvation and his forgiveness. You don't clean yourself up before you come to him. You can't. Good luck. You can't, you can't clean up your sins. So you, you come to Jesus just as you are, but you have to come with repentance, which is admitting that you're a sinner, that you've fallen short of the glory of God. You've done bad things, right? You've broken God's laws, God's commandments. You've lied, you've stolen, you've blasphemed his name. Repentance is about coming to the Lord with honesty. No denial, right? Denial is not only a river in Egypt. It's a problem that most human beings have. And then you put your faith in Jesus as your God, as your Lord, as your Savior. You put your faith that you believe he died for you on the cross and was raised from the dead. 
That's how you get your passport. You don't get it by praying a quick prayer. That's, I think, has misled many people. And we did that here for years, right? Just say a quick prayer, and I never would ever say to anybody, oh, now, now, now you're saved. Only the Holy Spirit can convey to a person that you're saved. You have to truly repent of your sins, and then you have to put your faith in Jesus, and then you get your passport. And you are translated at that point from being a citizen of earth. Think about this. As a citizen of earth, I was under the power and control and dominion of Satan. He was my Lord. I was controlled by sin. And then when I gave my life to Jesus, when I repented and put my faith in Jesus, I was translated into the kingdom of God. Not perfect, but with a definite desire to live for him and glorify him. That's how you get your passport. Number two. Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The joy of our faith, right? His faith. The joy of just surrendering to Jesus and his word and his teaching and seeing that that his answers are our answers. His faith is our faith. He's not a piece to the puzzle. He is the puzzle. And there's great joy in that. And last... To live is Christ and to die is gain. To live for the glory of God. To live our lives to an audience of one. And then to live our lives knowing that if it's time we go home. And we will be in his presence. And he will wipe away every tear. And there will be no pain. And there will be no sorrow. And there will be no more death. To live is Christ, to die is King. I want to say one more thing to you before I wrap up. I see a lot of lip service in church. In churches. I see a lot of lip service in Christianity as a whole. You know, people just say, they, they just parrot, they say the, the right things. Look at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 6 through 7. By the way, this is quoted by Jesus. And actually, it's Mark 7, 6 through 7. But it comes from Isaiah chapter 29. I put the wrong verse there. It says, he answered and said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy to you hypocrites as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of man. So, if you are a citizen of heaven, don't give lip service to God. Live as a citizen of heaven. If you are living by the faith of the Son of God, don't give lip service to it. Do it. And if you're living to an audience of one, don't give lip service to it. Do it. He said, for on that day, right? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. 
Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we have prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You know what? That's not the world, folks. That's us. And let me tell you something. Let me take this to heart. That's me doing what I do right now with you. Prophesying, proclaiming the word of God. And it, it's, it's not the ones who are doing that. It's the ones who do the will of my Father in heaven. So to say to live as Christ and die as gain and not live it is to be fooling yourself. To say I'm a citizen of heaven and, and not to be living it is to fool yourself. To claim that your faith is the faith of Christ and not to be living it out is, is to fool yourself. And notice what, what, what Jesus says here. Verse 22, first word. What is that word? Many. Many. These are church people who are basically, look, whether the devil has deceived them or they've deceived themselves. I said, it's the final test. You know what the final test of a true believer is? Time. Time. So that's the final test of a true believer. Will they finish the race in the faith? It's time. Because I've seen many people start, and you know what? They quit the race. I argue, did they lose their salvation? Were they once saved, always saved? All I, all I know is they didn't, they, they didn't abide in Christ. He who does the will of my Father in heaven. Amen? Take that to heart. Because there is great joy in that. Let's pray together. Father, I just thank you, Lord God, for your word. I thank you, Lord God, for, again, in this very trying world, trials and tribulations, we can have, Lord God, a joy that transcends the happenings of the world. And that joy comes to us from no other than Jesus, the Son of God. I do pray, Lord God, today, anyone here who doesn't have that assurance of salvation, anyone here, Lord God, who hasn't come and truly repented and put their faith in you, as their Lord and Savior, I pray that they would do that this morning. Right between you and God. Get right with Him right now. Get right with Him. Repent from your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your God, your Lord, and your Savior. Amen. And we will open the altars if you'd like to come.